There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Are all religions worshiping the same God? If a Muslim or a Sikh or a New Ager or a Zoroastrian or some person of another religion claims to love God and worship God, is it audacious, is it ludicrous for a Christian to deny their claim? Or is there a different way of explaining it that is both loving and logical? I believe there is, and that's what we're going to explore on this episode of Revealing the True Light. A famous playwright and dramatist, George Bernard Shaw, said, There is only one religion, but there's hundreds of versions of it. Was he correct in assessing religion that way? Could he be right? Well, absolutely not, because some religions don't even acknowledge a creator God, such as Buddhism and Jainism. According to Buddhist doctrine, the creation is just the result of cause and effect, not a personal God who brought it into existence. And so, Religions may have some commonalities, but I would dare to say that they differ so greatly in very important areas you can't blend them all together. However, I do admit that there are adherents of other religions who very sincerely, very passionately love God and in their own way attempt to worship God. Just to give you an example, Guru Nanak, the founder of Sikhism, which is an offshoot of Hinduism, said these words, listen closely, were I to live for millions of years and drink the air for my nourishment, I should still not be able to express thy worth, how great shall I call thy name. That sounds to me like someone who really loves God and is seeking to worship God. See, the American Indian who praises the Great Spirit, or the Hindu who acknowledges the Creator God Brahma, or the Muslim who worships Allah, or the Sikh who sings songs of devotion to Akal Purak, which means timeless being, or the Zoroastrian that claims to be worshiping Ahura Mazda, which is the wise lord in that religion, I believe they're all generating worship toward the one they conceive to be, the creator of the universe, the supreme power of the universe. Sometimes they may even generically cry out in their own languages, of course, Oh God, help me. Oh God, I love you. And if they do, are they connecting with God? Are they worshiping the same God? Well, the way I look at it is this. When I was a teacher of yoga and meditation 50 years ago, 51 years ago now, uh, 
I was very much in love with God. I loved God intensely, and I tried to worship him in my way for 12 hours a day from 3.30 in the morning till at least 3.30 in the afternoon, sometimes 5.30 in the afternoon. I would be involved in some kind of worshipful pursuit where I thought I was worshiping God. But there is a huge gap between worship and what Jesus called true worship. And we'll get to that in a little while. There's a huge gap between religion and relationship. There's a huge difference between loving God and knowing God. Because I guarantee you there are millions of Hindus and Muslims and Zoroastrians and millions of people of different faiths that claim to love God, but do they know God? Do they know God? Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 17, the first few verses. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now listen to the next verse, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He did not say this is eternal life that they might know about you. He said this is eternal life that they may know you. And there is a huge difference between those two categories because every religion claims to have some kind of doctrinal explanation of the nature and the attributes of God, but not all of them are the same and not all of them are right. I believe that there is one revelation that is the correct revelation of the nature of God, and that is Christianity. Only in Christianity do you find the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these three are one God. Think of that. You don't find that in Hinduism. You don't find that in Islam. And so, how could they be worshiping the same God? They may be casting worship the direction of the one they conceive to be God, but are they connected to God in a real supernatural way, in a spiritual heart-to-heart -heart connection. Listen to what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, in this wonderful conversation, and you should go back and read the whole thing. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Hold it just a second. He never said that this Samaritan woman was not a worshiper. He said, you worship what you do not know. In other words, you do not comprehend the nature and the attributes of the God that you are casting worship toward, that you are extending your heart toward. Genuinely, sincerely, I'm sure she loved God, but... She didn't know what she was worshiping. Jesus said, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming, Jesus said, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such 
to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What was he talking about? How do you worship God in spirit? And is that a possibility for anyone of any religion? Well, no, it's not a possibility for any human being because prior to salvation, prior to being born again, the Bible says we are dead in trespasses and sins. Well, we're living human beings. What does that mean? We're not dead. Well, we may be alive physically and soulishly, but we're dead spiritually. See, there are three parts to the human makeup, spirit, soul, and body. And because of our fallen state, the spirit is dead in trespasses and sins. Now, each one of those parts has three primary parts. So in a sense, we are a trinity of trinities. The, flesh is, the body is made up of flesh, bones, and blood. The soul is made up of three functions, mind, will, and emotions. And the spirit is made up of three functions, primary functions, and that is revelation from God, communion with God, and conscience. In those who have not yet been born again, the conscience is the only part of the spirit that is barely functional. Communion with God is cut off. That happened because of the fall of Adam and Eve. Revelation from God is not something that happens often unless God initiates it. Sometimes, rarely, God will initiate a revelation to someone. He'll break through the barrier between man and God to woo someone unto himself. But normally, there's a deadness there. There's a barrier there. There's a veil that's spread over all nations, a covering that's cast over all people. And that's the covering of flesh consciousness. And the spirit is imperceptive, insensitive to the things of God. It just has a barely functional conscience, like a, a coal in a fire that's burned down and is just glowing and it's almost about to go out. That's about the condition of the conscience. So prior to being regenerated, which is a biblical term that means to be born again, the spirit cannot connect with God. It has to be cleansed by the washing of the blood of Jesus and the infilling of the presence of God. See, let me give you a scripture that explains how this happens. And it was actually a prophecy in the Old Testament about what was going to come in the New Testament era. It's in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. God said concerning this coming era, he said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, a sensitive heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. See, as a new ager over 50 years ago, I taught that God's spirit was already within every human being. So to find God, you look within. But according to this passage of scripture, God does not dwell within every human being, but there's a, a significant and a certain point where his spirit does enter into you. And that's when a person is born again. In his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus very plainly said, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To be born of the water is this natural body. They call it the breaking of the water when the child exits from the mother's womb. It's called being born of the water in biblical vernacular. All right? Jesus said, except you be born of water and of the Spirit. Well, what does it mean to be born of the Spirit? It means just like that physical body of a child comes out of the mother's womb into a world it's unfamiliar with, a brand new spirit comes from God into the heart of the person who surrenders to the Lordship of Jesus, who claims the washing of the blood of Jesus to cleanse from all sin, and regeneration takes place. That means a new spirit is generated in that individual, and that's halfway to becoming a true worshiper. Because to worship God in spirit and in truth, you have to have a regenerated spirit, filled with God's spirit, cleansed and purified by the blood of Jesus. Now, I know that sounds outrageous and outlandish to some people who genuinely, authentically love God. Why would they need this? Because all of us are unworthy within our own goodness or righteousness to enter the presence of God. So we have to have this reconnection initiated by God himself. Jesus also said that true worshipers worship God in truth. What did he mean by that? I understand now what it is to worship God in spirit. It's with the heart of hearts, the deepest core of who you are. But what is it to worship God in the truth? Actually, there's seven different ways you do that. Number one is to worship God with sincerity. You're sincere. You're real. You mean it. It's not put on religion. You're not going through the motions in order to please someone else. You really, from your heart of hearts, love God. Number two, to worship God in the truth is to worship him with honesty. You don't try to candy coat your past. You are willing to purge your heart, to bring to the service the ugliest things that have been in your past and pour them out before God in repentance. Now, I fulfilled those two criteria when I was a yoga teacher. I was sincere and I was honest. I didn't come to God with any kind of false veneer uh, put on. I, I was honest about the kind of person I was and how much I needed him. But I did not fulfill the other five. Number three is to worship God in the truth with correct methods. So you have to have true methods, proper methods, correct methods in approaching God. For instance, the Bible talks about worshiping God with the clapping of hands, with the raising of hands, shouting with a loud voice. These are just some things you can do. But the Bible never mentions sitting in a cross-legged position called the lotus position and concentrating on the third eye. That is an occult practice, and you cannot reach the true God using a practice that was never designed by him to begin with. And it opens a portal to demonic influence in a person's life. And there are other things that people do, like chanting mantras to repeat the same words over and over again in a monotone way is absolutely 
a ridiculous and absurd way to try and approach God. Why would I say that? That sounds insulting, doesn't it? Well, would you approach another human being that way? Of course not. You wouldn't say, please hand me the spaghetti. If you were eating in a, a group of people, uh, you wouldn't say, well, pass the mayonnaise or pass the salt and pepper and then repeat it dozens of times in a monotone way so that you can communicate your message to a fellow human being. One time is enough because it's a flow of conversation. And they say, well, here, you're welcome to it. Uh, and it's the same way with God. God is not a machine and God is not a computer into which you have to insert a formula. And God is certainly not an impersonal life force that's manipulated by the right kind of incantation. God is a personal God. He's your father. And it doesn't work to repeat some phrase. You don't earn some kind of access into his presence by saying the same thing 10,000 times. What a ridiculous thing. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, do not use do not use these repeated phrases. Do not he said he said very clearly not to use these repeated phrases like the heathen do. Use not vain repetitions was his wording like the heathen do. Because God doesn't respond to that. So to be a true worshiper, you have to use correct methods. Now, I prefer to pray walking. I like to walk. It keeps my mind fresh and, and it just connects me to God the best way. Some people prefer kneeling. Some people prefer sitting and reading the Bible and praying. But there's no physical posture that is necessary in order to connect with God. If it was, it would be too mechanical for him. He wants to invade every part of your life anyway. That's why the Bible said to pray without ceasing when you're washing the dishes. You can have a prayer time with God doing that. It doesn't matter. Okay, number four, to be a true worshiper means to worship him with a correct comprehension of his identity and nature. See, if people misinterpret God's nature, he's not going to bring them into his presence or he would make a confusing statement about himself. For instance, in Hinduism, in a certain branch of Hinduism called Advaita Vedanta Hinduism, they believe that the whole universe is an emanation of God. And so everything is God. And the name of that impersonal life force is Brahman. If you use the name Brahman in approaching God, and if God responded and poured his spirit into your life in a tremendous supernatural manifestation, he would be validating and verifying that interpretation of who he is. And of course, he's not going to do that because you have to have a proper understanding of his character, his nature, his identity, his attributes. And that's why the name of Jesus is the only name. The Bible said there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus because it correctly connects with the nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus' claim of being God manifested on the earth, and he did in certain conversations verify that. See, and he was the only incarnation of God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
And so when you understand who he was, that not only was he a man in every way, he was altogether man, but he was also altogether God. And the only one that could ever claim that, see, praise God. And also, you need to understand, if you're going to approach him, the value of his virgin birth, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, how he rules and reigns over the whole universe. Praise God. It's not Krishna. It's not Allah. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the triune name of the triune God. You have to worship him with a correct comprehension of his nature and identity. Number five, the fifth way of becoming a true worshiper is to learn and comprehend the truth of God's word. Biblical revelation. You worship God by digging into the 66 books of the Bible, Genesis through Revelation. But then number six, you become a true worshiper by applying those truth principles to your life. For instance, the exhortation to forgive others. And when you apply that principle to your life, then you are a more genuine worshiper because you're accepting God's standards in your walk with him. And then finally, and this may be a little challenging for some people to wrap their mind around if they're not really familiar with biblical concepts, but the seventh way that you become a true worshiper is to worship, quote-unquote, in Christ. See, I have no right to go into the throne room of the creator of the universe on my own merits. But if I am under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God has sent forth the spirit of his son into my heart, he does so for this reason. It says, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, when Jesus is in us, and we are in him. And you may say, well, that sounds contradictory. It's either one or the other. No, it's like taking a Coke bottle and tossing it out in the ocean, and it goes down a few feet. Well, you can say the ocean is in the bottle, but the bottle is in the ocean. And in like manner, Christ is in us, but we are in Christ. We are surrounded with the ocean of his love, but that same love has been deposited within us. And if we are in Christ, we have the same access rights into the presence of the Father that he does. And only through him is that possible. And only through that access that is available through this regenerative experience, through being washed in the blood of Jesus, can you become a true worshiper. So I asked a question at the very beginning, and now... I'm going to answer that question again. In fact, the, the explanation of this podcast is this. All religions are one. We all worship the same God. You hear this opinion voiced quite often, but is it true? If a Muslim or a Sikh or a Hindu or a New Ager claims to love God and worship God, is it audacious and ludicrous for a Christian to deny the authenticity of that claim? Or is there a different explanation that is both loving and logical. I believe I have given you that different explanation that is both loving and logical. Listen, you can find out a lot more about these vital subjects 
by going to thetruelight.net. There's all kinds of articles there and videos and, and various interviews that I've done. Also, I would urge you to get this book, In Search of the True Light, 336 pages of in-depth, college-level revelation of the comparison between 20 religions plus. And in the first part of the book, I actually go into the commonalities in all religions that make people think that they're all legitimate approaches to God and to the human experience. So you need this book, and I would urge you to go to thetruelight.net and order it today. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.